together. Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Everything's running smoothly. Yo, yo, yo! Yo! What is going on? My name's Herzl. And this right here, it's your KC Moe. Rock Jock, wave that wheat. Don't call it a comeback. Call it a historic comeback. Matt Street, we about to get after it, yeah? LFK. Woo! Ain't none of y'all going to class today. What's the word? Kansas City, a happy Tuesday to the KC morning hoes. You know what we do? Tuesdays on the KCMS. We TBA. That's Take Back America. Myself, Professor Harvey K. from the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, reclaiming that radical history of America, that social democratic history of America. And once again, we dig into FDR. More lessons from FDR. This is how we find ways to coalition build. My brothers and my sisters, we got to change the world. And guess what? That is what we're going to do. Absolutely. Rate, review, subscribe, do that thing you do back in your feeds tomorrow. Kansas City, I love you so much. I really do. My name's Hartzell. A good day to be a Kansas Cityan. A great day to take back America. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. I am black, January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. <laughs> Professor Harvey K., my brother. You get that one okay, Professor K.? Usually we do a big three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to count down with my fingers. It looked like I was trying to give you the finger, and I wasn't, believe me. <laughs> professor Harvey K., the professor emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, and every Tuesday on this Your Casey Morning Show, we take back America because we believe in the radical promise of people, the freedom of it all. And by the way, I want everyone to know that the shame of it is, is that we're not on YouTube yet, because seriously speaking, I think people would find us terribly endearing, Hartzell. You know that? You and I, we're like filled with smiles the entire time we're together. In fact, we need a stage show one night. Taking back America on the road. This summer, Lauren and I have been talking. If we get down, when we get down to St. Louis area, we should think about, since it's summertime, we should think about driving over to Kansas City. Is that like a bar where you've got that wrestling going on? You would come watch one of our wrestling shows? No, no, no. Professor no. I, was thinking, I was thinking since you had access to the place. I think that'd be great. Yeah. By the way, is it a coffee shop or a bar? It's both. Oh, so I can get a drink there, right? Well, absolutely. You get a drink there, of course. Okay. I thought that I have to be loaded to talk to you. <laughs> I see what you're doing here. <laughs> when we make this tour happen, we're going to get shirts made. And we're going to get exactly that. HJK2KC Summer 2022. The tag team, Hartzell and Harvey versus... 
all comers. Wow, I love this. This strategy meeting, I loved it. <laughs> this is this is probably more for a Friday morning Casey morning show than a Tuesday Take Back America. In fact, we got to say thanks again, Alan Minsky. He was oh, yeah. amazing last week. I was not lying when I made that tweet. That's one of the best things we've ever done, Harvey. Well, I'm going to take that as not an insult to my one-on-one. <laughs> you think maybe Alan might come back again sometime? Absolutely. Without reservation. Um, he, he loved it. He, he loved it. Generally, when we do stuff as a, as a duo, he gives me a call afterward to say, so we were good, right? Or he'll say, we were good. Or was that good? Is Hartzell happy? You know, those kind of things. I lie and I told him he thought he was good. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons why we're doing this speech here today is because I really loved everything about what you and Alan are putting together, the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights. I think it's a way that we win in the 21st century, especially as a guy in Missouri who is trying to find a way to coalition build, right? That's the whole yeah. point. And, and so you sent me today's speech, and the title was this. It's in Professor Kay's book, FDR on Democracy. The right to vote must be open to our citizens irrespective of race, color, or creed. So Professor K teased me up with that title of the speech that we're going to go up today. And and I like to be the guy, while Professor K has provided some excellent introductions to his speeches, I like to skip the intro so I can make sure that I, yeah, I got the right stuff I was supposed to get. I don't want to cheat, essentially. You're right, Professor K? Yeah, that would be like a cheat sheet, the introduction. Or the cliff notes to the speech. Exactly. And I and I had better teachers than that. They told me never to do that. And I would never. And you always listen to them, I'm sure. I sure did. And I sure do as we speak, Professor K. So I went through this speech, and then I went back to the title of this speech, and I was thinking this is, you know, an FDR speech on race, but he doesn't really mention the word race in the speech. And I realized that, oh, I think I know what this man is doing right now. I think I know what FDR was doing. In fact, I think that was intentional. Was I right? Well, he's a politician, first and last. He is a president, a progressive one. He's one of my two favorite presidents. I mean, I can say all the good things about him, but he knew, well, as we said before, regarding the speech next week, he knew how to read the stadium. And by the way, do you remember the 36th speech where he talks about how the capitalists claim we want to overturn American institutions? And he said, no, no, well, we want to take away their power. That was given in a baseball stadium in Philadelphia, Franklin Field, I think it was. I mean, he was able to turn out vast numbers of people. Keep in mind, there, were, there was no television at the time, so people knew of his voice on radio and they wanted to see him. So I thought what I'd do, if it's okay, is I'll read the introduction to the speech, okay? Because they haven't had a chance to read it at home themselves. But then they have to stick with us. I want to tell them about something that contributes directly to why FDR delivered this speech at this time. So here's the general introduction to the speech. Running for a fourth term as president, because remember, this is a a radio address from the White House, October 5th, 1944. So I'm saying running for a fourth term as president, FDR recognized the importance of winning the growing African-American vote in the cities of the North. We say growing because the migration from South to North to get over the Mason-Dixon line, to get out of white supremacist Jim Crow, segregated Dixie continued. And the Northern cities, even though we're talking about neighborhoods that are overwhelmingly Black that are receiving them, the fact is that these cities were becoming ever increasingly more diverse, and especially because of African-American migration to them. So Northern Blacks historically had voted for the party of Lincoln. Right. I mean, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation and the North under his leadership beat the South. 
But in the course of the early New Deal years, most African-Americans had come to see his presidency, meaning FDR's presidency, as the means by which they might more effectively confront both Northern racial discrimination and Southern racial segregation. In light of the ongoing struggle against Nazism and fascism and racism overseas, the massive participation of African-Americans in the war effort and concerted pressure by the growing civil rights movement, NAACP, CORE, and other groups, Roosevelt placed the question of voting rights directly on the political agenda in this national radio address. Now, I said that I wanted to not go directly into the speech. Because I think people should realize that the question of the day, in many ways, legislatively, was not simply the fact that African-Americans in toto, essentially, were being denied the right to vote, as were many white Southerners who were too poor to pay poll taxes or remained unable to pass a literacy test. But the fact is that African-Americans in the South were utterly disfranchised. Now, the question that came up in the case of the war is, would GIs, and when I say GIs, I mean soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, and women in service, would they have the right and the ability to vote overseas? The ones at home in America, that would be the easier question, though they would be away from home. The absentee ballots would be a big question. But overseas would become all the more challenging, especially those men who are at the front. So I want to read to them a little bit of what I say in the book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, about the soldier vote question. So this is in the middle of the war, 1943. Roosevelt actively backed a new, because the previous efforts to get a soldier vote bill had failed. In 43, he actively backed a soldier vote bill introduced to Congress by two Democratic senators, Theodore Green of Rhode Island and Scott Lucas of Illinois. Projected to benefit men and women of every region and color, the Green-Lucas bill was clearly designed to circumvent the Southern elite's cherished states' rights and poll taxes. But this time, not only Dixiecrats opposed the legislation, so too did ardent anti-FDR Republicans who were convinced that the GIs overseas would vote for their president and commander-in-chief, Franklin Roosevelt. The bill went down in defeat between the Southern Democrats and the Northern Republicans who opposed it. And that December, Congress once again handed over to the states the responsibility of enabling absentee soldiers, sailors, and Marines to vote. And as Max Lerner, the left writer and editor, editorialist of that day wrote, this is the most barefaced betrayal of America by Americans that it has been my duty to comment on. I wish the senators who defeated the bill had had the guts to say directly and frankly to our soldiers, we don't trust you. You have a right to die for your country, but we fear to let you choose who shall rule your country. I want to make clear that the Southern white supremacists, the guys who are in, in the House and the Senate, they've been able to prevent blacks from voting at home. Why would they necessarily vote to enable them to vote overseas? And as I said to you before we began, why would they enable folks who were just trained to fight with weapons come home saying, you bet I want the right to vote. Oh, you got the picture. Okay. Now, none of it escaped the GIs themselves. One white army sergeant serving near the front in Italy spoke for most of his comrades when he told the photographer Margaret Bork White, quote, there shouldn't have to be any legislation so we can vote. It should be understood and automatic. When men leave their country, give up their jobs, leave their homes, and sometimes even sacrifice their lives to preserve the democratic way of life, why anyone can question this right to vote is beyond me. I'm now back to my own voice. Of course, the handling of the soldier vote question was just one of many things going on back home that aggravated the GIs. 
And not only Congress angered them, private Herit or Eret Wilson of Everett, Washington, wrote home to his mother from the Pacific. Listen to these words, Hartzell. I fought and killed so that the enemy might not invade our land. And I ask, is it all for naught, for nothing? When red, white, and blue fascists drive Nisei, meaning second generation Japanese Americans, about like coyotes, plague the fathers, mothers, and relatives of our colored comrades that fight by our side. And then he wrote to his mother at the end, he refused to give up hope and he urged her to raise your voice, he said. So anyhow, it's important to understand that FDR had had to endure the alliance with these white Southern Democratic Dixiecrats, we can call them, because it was the only way to make sure the New Deal was enacted. And the price he had to pay was that agricultural workers, household workers were left out of key bills. And these legislators got their hands on these bills. They literally kept out agricultural workers and household workers from the National Labor Relations Act and the Social Security Act, which meant they weren't going to get social security payments, but it also meant they did not have the right to organize labor unions in agriculture. That didn't come till later. Now, here's the thing. This bothered FDR because he realized he'd already tried to purge the party back in 38 of the worst of the Southern Democrats, basically failed. He realized that the Dixiecrats and the Northern and Western conservative Republicans were forming a coalition to block everything. So he was well aware of the fact that it was imperative that the Democratic Party, imperative that the Democratic Party truly secure the right to vote for those who were being denied the vote. And I'm, I'm going to add something in here, which hadn't told you before, Hartzell. I don't know if you remember this. Before the 44 election, Roosevelt met with Wendell Wilkie. Wendell Wilkie was the guy who ran on the Republican ticket against FDR in 1940. Wilkie was a liberal Republican who became all the more progressive during the war. And in fact, he and Roosevelt became, if you like, almost allies on many a question. And Roosevelt enabled Wilkie to go around the world in an Air Force bomber visiting allied countries to really sort of solidify the alliance around the world and also in order to promote American interests. Well, when Wilkie got back, he actually wrote a book, I think it was entitled One World. And in this, he's very blunt about it. He challenges Americans, seriously challenges, FDR included, to get over the race question, to literally, literally become the nation it had promised all Americans it would become. Now, knowing this, FDR invited Wilkie to a meeting. And FDR actually said to Wilkie in this meeting, very little known about this, but we, we know it happened. It's going to be 44 when, remember, Henry Wallace would end up being pushed off. This is before that even happened. But he asked Wilkie, would Wilkie be his vice presidential running mate? Leave that Republican Party. In fact, he said, what he actually told him was this, let's create a liberal political party meaning a social democratic liberal political party. We'll bring in their liberal Republicans, and there were quite a few of them in those days, and the progressive and liberal Democrats. And I think Wilkie said, well, what about the Southern Democrats, you know, the Jim Crow types? And basically Roosevelt said, let them go wherever they want, which is to say he probably said, let them go to hell. But Wilkie said, no, he would not do it in 44. But after the election, he would cooperate on putting that kind of new party together. He died, died of a heart attack or something after the elections. And then FDR dies the following spring. So, but the point is that FDR had these kinds of questions in his mind. He was serious about this stuff. So we have this speech that he gave in October 44. Now, as I said, undeniably, he was appealing for the black vote, which was up north. But he was also trying to project 
as he did with the Economic Bill of Rights speech, a vision for America after the war that all adult Americans, men and women, obviously that was accomplished in 1920, whether they were black, white, brown, whatever, had the right to vote. And the idea was to make sure they had the right to vote, to guarantee it. Okay, so let's take up this speech. It's not terribly long, but it's important. It's a forgotten speech, and it's important. When this was given October 5th, 44, when he makes references to, like, the party of Lincoln, do people realize that he's talking about black folks? Well, let's put it this way. When he goes into the speech and he talks about irrespective of race, color, or creed, yeah, people had to know what he meant. They had to know what he meant. But it's also the case that he meant as well to bring it into the poll taxes and literacy requirements that African-Americans suffered would also then have empowered Southern whites who were poor as well. So, I mean, he's a smart politician. Some people said, why didn't he do this earlier? Well, he didn't do it. How do I know? Maybe because he was afraid he would have lost. Keep in mind, going into the war, Americans had mixed feelings about going into the war. He saw a post-war America in a radical fashion, knowing probably it couldn't be done quickly, but it could be done soon enough. And just for the record, Truman actually takes up that question, pushed by A. Philip Randolph in the post-war years. My fellow Americans, I am speaking to you tonight from the White House. I am speaking particularly on behalf of those Americans who, regardless of party, very much hope that there will be recorded a large registration and a large vote this fall. I know, and many of you do, from personal experience, how effective precinct workers of all parties throughout the nation can be in assuring a large vote. We are holding a national election despite all of the prophecies of some politicians and a few newspapers who have stated time and again in the past that it was my horrid and sinister purpose to abolish all elections and to deprive the American people of the right to vote. As a sidebar, and don't edit this out, we know Trump does want to do that. (laughs) Fine. Now go ahead. Sorry to cut you (laughs) off, but I couldn't resist. These same people, caring more for material riches than human rights, try to build up bogeys of dictatorships in this republic, although they know that free elections will always protect our nation against any such possibility. Nobody will ever deprive the American people of the right to vote except the American people themselves, and the only way they could do that is by not voting at all. The continuing health and vigor of our democratic system depends on the public spirit and devotion of its citizens, which find expression in the ballot box. Every man and every woman in this nation, regardless of party, has also the sacred obligation to register and to vote. For the free and secret ballot is the real keystone of our American constitutional system. The American government has survived and prospered for more than a century and a half and is now at the highest peak of its vitality. This is primarily because when the American people want a change of government, even when they merely want new faces, they can raise the old electioneering battle cry of throw the rascals out. So I'll pick this part up. It is true that there are many undemocratic defects in voting laws in the various states. Almost 48 different kinds of defects. That's the number of states at the time, by the way. And some of these produce injustices which prevent a full and free expression of public opinion. The right to vote must be open to our citizens, irrespective of race, color, or creed, without tax or artificial restriction of any kind. The sooner we get to that basis of political equality, the better it will be for the country as a whole. I want to pause for a second. You might ask yourself, this is the old line, race, color, creed. And you might say, well, what's this race and color? And what's this? Race actually didn't refer to what we think of as race in the same way. 
So for example, Irish, English, Scottish, Swedish, all those folks, they were each a race. That was left over from like the 19th century idea. The color, of course, makes the sense of race all the more about race. But it's a decidedly, it's all basically non-scientific. It's a matter of cultural custom. And uh, obviously, we suffer the consequences. This year, for many millions of our young men in the armed forces and the merchant marine and similar services, it will be difficult in many cases and impossible in some cases to register and to vote. I think the people will be able to fix the responsibility for the state of affairs, for they know that during this past year, there were politicians and others who quite openly worked to restrict the use of the ballot in this election, hoping selfishly for a small vote. And I'm referring here especially to that soldier vote question. They literally wanted to keep soldiers from voting. By the way, I hope people can tell the difference between when I'm supposed to be FDR versus when I'm Harvey K. (laughs) Back to FDR. It is therefore all the more important that we here at home must not be slackers on registration day or on election day. I wish to make a special appeal to the women of the nation to exercise their right to vote. Women have taken an active part in this war in many ways, in uniform, in plants, and shipyards, in offices and stores and hospitals, on farms and on railroads and buses. They have become more than ever a very integral part of our national effort. Harsa, why don't you pick up from there? I know how difficult it is, especially for the many millions of women now employed, to get away to register and vote. Many of them have to manage their households as well as their jobs, and a grateful nation remembers that. But all women, whether employed directly in war jobs or not, women of all parties and those not enrolled in any party this year have a double obligation to express by their votes what I know to be their keen interests in the affairs of government, their obligation to themselves as citizens, and their obligation to their fighting husbands and sons and brothers and sweethearts. It may sound to you repetitious on my part. But it is my plain duty to reiterate to you that this war for the preservation of our civilization is not won yet. The power of the will of the American people expressed through the free ballot that I have been talking about is the surest protection against the weakening of our democracy by regimentation or by any alien doctrines. And likewise, it is a source of regret to all decent Americans that some political propagandists are now dragging red herrings across the trail of this national election. For example, Labor baiters, bigots, and some politicians use the term communism loosely and apply to every progressive social measure and to the views of every foreign-born citizen with whom they disagree. Sounds familiar, huh? (laughs) Imagine that. We have seen our civilization in deadly peril, FDR continued. Successfully, we have met the challenge due to the steadfastness of our allies, to the aid we were able to give our allies, and to the unprecedented outpouring of American manpower, American productivity, and American ingenuity, and to the magnificent courage and enterprise of our fighting men and our military leadership. What is now being won in battle must not be lost by lack of vision or lack of knowledge or by lack of faith or by division among ourselves and our allies. We must, and I hope we will, continue to be united with our allies in a powerful world organization which is ready and able to keep the peace, if necessary, by force, a global peacekeeping body. To provide that assurance of international security is the policy, the effort, and the obligation of this administration. We owe it to our posterity. We owe it to our heritage of freedom. We owe it to our God to devote the rest of our lives and all of our capabilities to the building of a solid, durable structure of world peace. 
He believed it was absolutely essential for Americans to create not just the universal right to vote, but to guarantee, to create a true guarantee of their right to vote, to bring an end to this poll tax and literacy requirement bullshit. I mean, basically speaking, look, in 38, he said anybody who accepted the Southern, you know, the Southern system was basically accepting fascism. It was on his mind. He just knew that in order to hold together his administration, he had to make compromises that probably pained him no end. This segment, one of the things that I think is a through line is that you can't have a conversation about race without a conversation about class. And I know that some of even folks who I agree with on the left think that maybe that is too reductive. And I think that, well, I'm in the game of coalition building. And I want to make it clear to everyone, I'm not ignoring a very fundamental fact here. The poor white farmer was not getting lynched. The lynching of African-Americans was a, a real signal as to what the South remained through the mid 20th century. You said, to talk about race, one must also talk about class. And I'd flip it too and say, you can't talk about class in America without talking about race. Okay, in good part, because we know if, if we're talking about improving the lives of working class people, the working class is the diverse class. I can't tell you how often if I'm on Twitter and I say working class, somebody comes back and they say, yeah, you mean the white working class. I, I mean the working class. When I say the working class, I mean the working class, Okay. I think you really just put a great button on this conversation when so many folks, when the media or when, you know, even the president, unfortunately, they do think of this fictional white guy from Michigan. And you're right. The working class is the working class. And when the working class has nowhere to go, that's how we get folks like Donald Trump or Josh Hawley here in Missouri. Professor Harvey K., where are we going to be headed next week? I think we gave a little tease. We're going to be uh, reading the stadium. Is that what FDR was doing? Yes. Next week. We are going to be doing a speech. Oh, I was looking in the book, but this is the one speech that I regret not having included in the book. This is an address at Fenway Park, Boston, Massachusetts, on November 4th, 1944, right up against the nose of the election, three days away. And, um, you know, there's that article in the Boston Globe that I sent you a link to. If you, if you remember, send me back that link. So it would be fun to maybe read a couple of lines in that next week. Yeah, and that's the article from 1944. I think it was the day after the speech was given. Right. The reporters were there that night, and then the next day they reported on the speech. Or you at least be prepared to read some delicious lines from that Ooh, article. 40,000 strong, apparently, in Fenway, according to uh, The Globe. And that's the kind of live show you and I need to do. <laughs> <laughs> we said already that we've got the HJK2KC. That tour starts this summer. Come on, coming to a stadium near you. I'm going I'm to drop a name before we go tonight. I just got, I haven't read it yet. I just got a text from Nina Turner. I don't want to claim any kind of importance here, but. <laughs> Harvey K, you name droppings. I look forward to when people say, you know Hartzell Gray? Wow. You mean Hartzell, you know Harvey JK? That's us. That's us. That's it. <laughs> Professor K, my brother, I love you. Next week, we're going to have a good one. Let's keep changing the world. Let's keep taking back America, yeah? Absolutely. Where can they find you, Professor K? I can't say they'll find me at the White House, but <laughs> I can say they will find me at Harvey, J-K-A-Y-E, on, what's it called, Twitter? Twitter, that one. That one. And last but not least, if some of this didn't make you smile, I don't know what will. <laughs> And on that note, Professor K, my brother, until next week. You bet, next week.